right, we are in Mark's gospel. Uh, last week, we almost got to the end of chapter 11. We're going to finish off chapter 11 and look at the beginning of chapter 12. Uh, so we're in Mark chapter 11, verses 27. And we're going to read through to Mark 12, verse 12. So Mark 11, verse 27, through to Mark 12, 12. The word of God reads, They came again to Jerusalem. And as he, as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say... From heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and they struck him on the head, and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed, he had still one other a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, Thou respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I, I pray for humility in preaching this passage but i also pray for a holy conviction and an unction in preaching this passage i pray that it be your voice your words that are spoken from this pulpit and so lord i pray to be able to speak with clarity not to be able to deliver a message well but to present your words and your voice with crystal clarity and we pray that your words and your voice would be transforming to us today as we examine what it means that Jesus is Saviour, but also what it means that Jesus is Lord. Lord, there are so many things that we, we take for granted or we gloss over, so many concepts and titles that we just take for granted. But Lord, in this time, uh, we, we ask in humility to be able to just take a step back and see what your word reveals to us about the Christ what it meant, 
to your people back then and what it means to us today. And so as we pray every week, may you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you recall last week's passage, you'll remember that Jesus, uh, he taught a parable. But he didn't verbally speak this parable. It was a parable that he acted out using a barren fig tree that bore no fruit. And this analogy of the fig tree, it was sandwiched, like sandwiched in between these two encounters with the fig tree was this incident where Jesus goes ballistic in the temple, overturning tables, you know, driving people out. And it was a reaction against the appalling practices that had been established in the outer courts of the temple. The place of worship for Gentiles, Jews had set up shop. They'd set up, you know, the little marketplaces to sell animals. Rip-off merchants were setting up uh, currency exchanges to be able to rip people off and make uh, a hefty profit. And, you know, worst of all, they'd become a hindrance to non-Jewish people in their very place of worship. Jesus, seeing this chaos, went absolutely berserk. Now, in today's passage, uh, Jesus returns to Jerusalem and he goes back to that same temple. And um, probably he went back to make sure these guys hadn't come back. That You know, the, the, the marketplace had relocated to another location. Um, but probably he was also teaching. You know, Jesus walked in the temple a lot, went to synagogues. Usually, usually there was a large crowd following Jesus as he walked. And it would have been his practice to walk teach and preach. Uh, but whilst he was doing this, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, it says in today's passage that they came looking for him. They were probably still bitter about what Jesus did the night before. And they say to him, with that fresh in their minds, what Jesus did the day before, they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? You know, you flipped over tables. You drove people out. Who gives you the right to be able to do something like that? What gives you the authority? Because remember, to, to, to the Jews at the time and the Jewish leaders, who was Jesus? Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth. He's just that guy from the western suburbs, the nobody from the western suburbs, son of a blue-collar worker. This is Jesus, the son of Joseph, a carpenter by trade, uneducated. So they're asking him, who do you think you are? Like, you never studied under any famous rabbi. The Apostle Paul, who we find later on in the New Testament, he studied under Gamaliel, one of the most celebrated rabbis of the day. He was a Pharisee. You know, he, you know, he went, graduated from Bible college, seminary. Who, who are you? What college did you graduate from? What rabbi did you study under? What gives you the right to be able to do stuff like this? And they asked him this question, by what authority do you do these things? And they asked it in an earthly sense. By what authority are you doing this? And who gave you the authority to do this? And so whilst the, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, they're thinking in an earthly context, Jesus responds with a question in a heavenly context. He responds to them with his own line of questioning in verses 29 and 30. He says, I'll ask you a question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. And he asked them, was the baptism of John, like John the Baptist, 
his cousin that had his head, head cut off? Was the baptism from John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, if you recall what happened to John and who John was, John was a prophet. There was no mistake about that. He was a prophet that was promised from the Old Testament. And he'd be a prophet who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. That's why when people ask John, who are you? Are you the Messiah? He says, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness, make way for the king. John's primary purpose in life was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And if you read through the early chapters of the Gospels, you'll find that the way he prepared the way for the coming Messiah was by preaching a message and a baptism of repentance. Calling people to repent of their sins and understand that your hope of salvation cannot come from yourselves. Your acceptance of God, your acceptance and your entry into heaven cannot come from you. The hope of that can't come from you. All you can do is sin. And so what he preached was to repent and trust in God's plan, God's Savior that is going to come. And then New Testament, Jesus appears on the scene. And so Jesus poses the question to them, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And he asks them, you guys remember John the Baptist? The guy who had his head cut off by Herod? You know the message he preached? You know the ministry that he worked in? Let me ask you, was his message from God? Was he doing God's work? Was he sent by God? Or was he just a man? In other words, was he truly a prophet? Or was he just a religious nut that, was, that had no idea what he was talking about? And we see how the religious authorities react to this question. It's quite pathetic how they react. Because for the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, it shouldn't have been a difficult question. Remember, these guys are the religious authorities of the day. They know everything when it comes to matters of spirituality. And so for someone like John the Baptist, is he a prophet or is he a nutcase? It shouldn't be a difficult question. It should be just like a one-word answer for them. But what do they do? They say, well, give, give us a minute. And they have a little huddle on the side. He was either a prophet or he wasn't. His teachings were either from God or it wasn't. But he was the problem. Because everyone who listened to John the Baptist and followed him, it was just widely accepted that John the Baptist was a prophet. Everyone believed that his message of repentance was from God. What can you critique about someone that calls people to repent of their sins and to trust in God? You can't critique that. But John the Baptist wasn't someone that was endorsed by the Jewish religious authorities. He wasn't. They didn't like him. Because John challenged the status quo. That's why when John has his head cut off at the command of Herod, you don't really read about any objection or outrage from the religious authorities. Like if I got my head cut off, I would hope that you guys would be outraged. But there was no outrage from the religious authorities. Like, oh yeah, he got what was coming to him. And so verse 
I hope you guys would be outraged. <laughs> and so verses 32 and 33, or the, the 31, to, 31 and 32 rather, says they discussed with one another. They gathered, had a little huddle, a group discussion. And they said, you know what? If we say he was from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you support him? Why didn't you endorse him? But if we say, yeah, you're right, he was a religious nut, then what are these tens of thousands of people going to do with us? What are they going to think of us? Because everyone knows that John the Baptist spoke God's word. They all believed he really was a prophet. It's a simple question from Jesus. Is he from God or is he of man? But they huddled together. They put their minds. Remember, they, like from a religious perspective, these are the spiritual intellectual giants of the day. They put all their minds together and they tried to come up with a clever response to Jesus' question. They come to Jesus. What authority are you doing these things? What Bible college did you go to? What teacher did you study under? Almost like, what kind of an education do you have? I went to Harvard. What, what, you just graduated from high school and that's it? That's the kind of mindset they're coming to Jesus with. And yet for all their spiritual and religious intellect, despite putting all their brilliant minds together, and don't get me wrong, these guys were intellectually gifted people. They were intelligent, they were smart, there's no question about that. But they put all their minds together and the very best that they can come up with is, we don't know. We don't know. Was John the Baptist a false teacher or a man from God? We don't know. And Jesus says to them, you don't know? Then I'm not going to answer your question. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, when you read this at first glance, it sounds like a petty reply from Jesus, don't you? You don't answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question. That's what it sounds like. It almost seems childish, but there's actually more to it. Jesus wasn't childish. There's more to it than that. Um, because remember, they came to Jesus questioning his authority. By what authority do you have? Who gave you this kind of authority to be able to act like this? Now, Jesus could have taken the time to go all the way from Genesis, from Genesis 3.15, you know, Genesis 12.1, Micah 5.1. Uh, he could have gone through, you know, Psalm 22, 23. And he could have explained how all these things are pointing to me. He could have said, you know, the Old Testament is all about me. It was all about the Messiah. Of course, I have the authority. But the matter of the fact is, is that if they weren't willing to answer Jesus' question about John the Baptist, because anyone in their right mind would have known that John the Baptist was from God. The very fact that they weren't interested in acknowledging John was from God, that he was a prophet, that he was the one promised from God to prepare the way for the king's messenger, rather, the king's messenger to prepare the way for the king. Because you remember, John, what was his job? It was to announce the coming of a king, like a herald saying, the king is coming. If they weren't willing to accept the messenger proclaiming that the king is coming, then clearly they're not interested in the king that the messenger has come to announce. If they're not interested in acknowledging that John was from God, then clearly they're not interested 
in hearing that Christ was from God. That's why when they don't respond to Jesus' question about John, Jesus, by saying, I'm not going to answer your question, he's pretty much saying, you know what, I'm not going to waste my breath. There's no point in answering your question by what authority I have because you're not interested in hearing an answer. You're not even going to entertain the possibility that what I say is true. But what Jesus does do is he shares a parable in chapter 12. It says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. And then it, he goes on to talk about how he sent his beloved son, who dies at their hands. He gives this illustration, or this parable, of a man who owned the property, and he turned it into a wine-making business. It was a vineyard, he installs a wine press to produce wine, and like with a lot of you know, landowners and business owners in Judea at that time, what he did was he leased it out. He got other people to run the business whilst he lived in another region. But the problem was that when it came to harvest time, when it came to collecting, you know, the annual or quarterly profits, he sent servants to collect his share as the owner, as the guy that invested in the land, took all the business risk and liability to be able to set this up. He, he sent servants to collect the profits. What do these guys do? They beat the first servant. So he sends the second servant. They bash the head of the second servant. They murder the third servant. And they treated every servant after that in the same manner. Either they bashed them, beat them, or killed them. Why is Jesus talking about this? What's the context? What's this got to do with the chief priests, scribes, and the elders. Well, the context, remember, Jesus was just talking about John the Baptist. Who was John the Baptist? He was a prophet of God. He was a messenger from God to God's people. And if you read throughout the scriptures about prophets that God sends to deliver a message to his people, you will find that Israel has a horrific history of how they treat these prophets from God. If you read through the Old Testament, you find the prophet Jeremiah. They attacked Jeremiah. They oppressed, opposed, and persecuted Amos, Micah, Ezekiel. If you look at Elijah, and you look at how King Ahab and his wife Jezebel treated Elijah, tradition holds it that Elijah ended up, oh sorry, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel ended up being stoned to death. Tradition has it that Isaiah was tied between two trees, arms tied one end, legs to the other, and they sawed him to death in half. Not to mention what happened to John the Baptist, who had his head cut off for preaching a message of repentance. Jesus continues the parable to talk about the Old Testament, but then he says, you know what, this is going to reach a climax because this owner ends up sending his beloved son 
But what was the reaction of the tenants? They look at the son and they say, you know what? This guy is the heir. This is the guy that's going to inherit everything. Come, let's kill him. And all of this that we've worked for, it's going to be ours. This kingdom, it'll be ours. Now, most owners back then, they didn't send their sons to do stuff like this. Um, if they killed every other servant, you probably wouldn't want to send your son. But just culturally, you didn't send your son to collect money like this. You'd send the servants. And so in the minds of the tenants, when they saw the son coming, the only reason that the son would have come is if the owner was dead. That's why they say, you know, let's kill the son. Because if the owner's still alive, you don't really inherit anything, do you? If the owner's still alive, it's in his name. But they see the son coming, and they realize, ah, oh, the only reason the son must be coming is because the owner's dead, and the son must have already inherited it. That's why they say, let's kill the son. And so they took him, and they killed him, and threw him outside the vineyard. Coincidentally, Jesus crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. Now, the only right outcome as a result of their actions, according to Jesus, is that the owner should come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to other people. Now, if we understand the context of this parable, we know that Jesus is equating the tenants not only to the historical kings of Israel and the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament, but he's equating it to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders that have come to confront Jesus at the end of chapter 11. And we know this because verse 12 of chapter 12 says that they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. And so having nothing more to say or being too scared to say anything further, it says that they left him. They walked away. And that's how today's passage ends. This passage was more than just another mic drop moment in the Gospel of Mark. This passage should give us some food for thought to reflect upon uh, if we meditate on it this week. And I came up with a, a few things for us to think about. And the first is a question. It's a question that's assumed in this passage. I think it's a question that we assume too easily sometimes. It's the question that the, the chief priests ask of Jesus. What kind of authority does Jesus have? What kind of authority does Jesus have? And what should it mean for us today? Now, as we've gone through our series in Mark, we know that Jesus is Lord. We know that he's the son of David, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the son of man, the son of God, the savior of the world. And we understand that because he is all these things, we know on an intellectual level that he has supreme authority. Jesus in Matthew 28, that passage on the Great Commission to go into all nations, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded them. Before he gives that instruction, he says something. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But what does this mean? What does that imply? Well, if you look at the conversation that Jesus has with the religious leaders, even though Jesus doesn't actually answer their questions, I think we find the key to understanding the authority of Jesus 
And the key to understanding the authority of Jesus is understanding the authoritative message that John the Baptist preached. Because what kind of a message did John preach? What kind of a baptism did John preach? It was a baptism of repentance. And remember that John the Baptist was the one that was preparing the way for the coming Messiah. So in a sense, the way that John prepared the way for Jesus was preparing a path of repentance. Now, repentance is more than simply saying sorry to God. Let me be clear on that. Dear Jesus, I am sorry. There is more to repentance than just an apology. Repentance implies surrender. I surrender my life to you. I give up trying to rule and run my own life. I surrender all of this, everything I have and everything I am, I surrender to you. And again, we know this. If you've grown up for church in church in a, for any length of time, you know this. But do we live it out? Pastor John MacArthur, in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, great book, he fleshes out what repentance means. And he says, and I quote, The gospel call to faith presupposes that sinners must repent of their sin, and not only repent of their sin, but yield to Christ's authority. And the point he was trying to raise in sharing this is that repentance of sin and yielding to the authority of God, although they are two separate things, they go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. And he addresses this because of a problem that is plaguing the modern day church. And it's the problem of what's been coined as easy believism. Easy believism. Just believe and get saved. And that is true. You are saved if you believe, but that's only half the truth. It's not the whole truth, because what easy believism does is it waters down what the gospel is all about, and ultimately what it does is it takes the identity of Jesus and it splits it, and it teaches that you can accept one part of Jesus, but you don't have to accept the other. It clings to this title of Jesus as saviour, that believe and receive Jesus as saviour, that if you believe in the person and work of Christ, that you are saved. But what it does is it divorces the title of Jesus as saviour from the title of Jesus as Lord. And so many people are content with receiving and clinging to Jesus the saviour but not really willing to cling to and accept Jesus as Lord. Because to accept Jesus as Lord means that you have to give up. You have to surrender. Your life is not your life. Your life no longer belongs to you. It belongs to him. You cannot accept Christ as saviour if you don't accept him as Lord. This is why you ask anyone in the street, even if they're an atheist, do you want to go to heaven? Yes, I want to go to heaven. Great, then just believe and get saved. 
Atheists won't have a problem with saying, I'll just believe in Jesus as Savior, as long as nothing else needs to change. Everyone wants to go, no one wants to go to hell. If there is a heaven, of course everyone wants to go to heaven. And I know this is a Pentecostal church, and traditionally, um, Pentecostals focus on spiritual gifts. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, and I had a conversation with a number of pastors at a, a full gospel pastors retreat recently. And uh, I noticed that one of the big things about Pentecostals uh, when it comes to evidences of the Holy Spirit is this supernatural gift of praying in tongues. And I've got nothing against praying in tongues. If you have the gift of tongues, celebrate it, rejoice in it, exercise it. I don't have the gift of tongues, um, but if you do have it, I'm envious of you and I celebrate together with you. Um, however, I do not agree that tongues can be the primary evidence of receiving the Holy Spirit. And I don't say this because I don't think it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. I think it absolutely is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But the reality is that Muslims pray in tongues. Hindus pray in tongues. Jews pray in tongues. And Buddhists pray in tongues. Uh, I've met people who professed their faith in Christ that prayed in tongues, that fell away from the faith, eventually died. An apostate. Tongues can be an indication that you are in Christ, that you've experienced the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But in all my years of walking with Christ and studying this word, uh, one of the critical truths I want to impart to you from today's passage is that the greatest evidence that you've truly received Christ as Savior is that you've received him as Lord. And the greatest evidence that you've received Jesus as Lord is that your life is defined by a life of obedience. Because as I mentioned, if you've accepted him as Lord, what it means to accept Christ as Lord is to accept that you're surrendering everything to him. Just as Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will, Father. And to be real with you, um, it's not going to be a perfect obedience. Even if you have true saving faith, it's not going to be a perfect obedience. It's not going to be like an exponential line that just goes up and you're just growing in perfect holiness. There are going to be times where you will fall into sin. There's going to be times where you deviate away from obedience despite your best efforts to follow Christ as Lord. But the good news is that Jesus has already accounted for that. So that when you do stumble in following him as Lord, and trust me, you will stumble. I stumble. Everyone's Calvin stumbled. Spurgeon stumbled. Wesley stumbled. You will stumble. The good news is that we have the privilege. If we stumble in following him as Lord, we have the privilege of clinging to him as Savior. That's why these two things go hand in hand. That's why we say, have you received Christ as Lord and Savior? Because these two things work together with beautiful chemistry. 
And so going back to the passage, this is why Jesus quotes the Old Testament. If you notice, I didn't touch verse 10 and 11 in exegeting this passage. I'll touch on it now. This is why Jesus says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the critical stone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous. It's marvelous in our eyes. Why is it marvelous? How is the rejection of Jesus a marvelous thing? Why does scripture use this kind of language? Isaiah 53 says, It pleased the Lord to crush his son. Why should it be pleasing to crush the son of God? It's marvelous. It's pleasing. Because it means that as we live a life of obedience with Jesus as Lord, it means that even if we stumble, and we will stumble, we still remain in Christ. Because the sacrifice of Christ means that our debt for sin has been paid for in full. We can cling to Christ as our Savior, knowing that every time, from now until the day we die, every time we cling to Him, the integrity of this Savior, the gift of salvation that He offers, will always be reliable, perfect, and most importantly, enough every time. Every time we stumble. Sometimes we think, not every time. I'm telling you, according to the authority of God's word, every time we stumble, he will be enough. And this means that when we come to him, you know, we're in discipleship, we, we touched on repentance through the gospel. When I say every time, sometimes we have this idea that there's going to be a time where you've stumbled to a point where God's not going to want to see you. Every time means that you can run to him in expectation, in anticipation that he's going to receive you back. Every time. If you've received Christ as Lord, then you've received him as Savior. Vice versa. But going back to the authority of Jesus, you have to remind yourselves, and I, want you to rem I, I have to remind myself a lot, that the greatest evidence of having received the Holy Spirit, according to today's passage, the greatest evidence that we're trusting in Christ is a life that reflects ongoing obedience. Not, perf not perfect obedience, but ongoing obedience. A life lived out that evidences that for this person, I can see who is the Lord of their life. I can see who is the one calling the shots in this person's life. I can see who's the one that's shaping the trajectory of this person's life, and it's not this person. And it's important for us to reflect on that question. What kind of authority does Jesus have, and what should it mean for us? Because the transforming power of God hinges on how we respond. To this question. Point number two. Scripture is our supreme authority because Jesus is our supreme authority. Again, cliche answer. Of course, the Bible is the answer. We've got Jeter, Jesus is the answer. You could call it beat up, the Bible is the answer. Um, but if we accept Christ as Savior, the evidence that we acknowledge Him as Lord of our lives, the supreme authority, the evidence of this is that his words hold supreme authority of our lives. 
That's just the logical inevitability. If someone is the supreme authority, then everything that he says should have supreme authority. My wife has some level of authority over my life. If she says, Jay, go, go take out the garbage or wash the dishes, yes, ma'am. Why? Because as wife, she has a certain level of authority over my life. I don't know if it's two ways, but nonetheless. <laughs> and this is important because this is where you know, I mentioned the easy believism earlier, how we've kind of divorced the title of Savior and Lord. And I think this is where the divorce occurs because people are willing to accept him as Savior. But if you divorce the title of Lord, then you're saying, you know what? I'm really okay with accepting forgiveness, but not any kind of authority that Jesus exercises over my life. For so many, they're content with receiving salvation earning citizenship in heaven. But if saviour and lordship are to go hand in hand, how on earth do you accept and submit to the lordship of Jesus if you have no interest in what this Lord has to say? How do you live a life of obedience if you have no interest in what the supreme authority commands us to obey? To live a life of obedience we have to know what Christ commands us to obey. And if, as John says in the opening of his gospel, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God, the moment that you dis decide that, you know what, Scripture's not that important. The moment you say, you know what, the Bible, it's not that relevant in my life, then what we are really saying is that the authority of Jesus is not really that relevant or important. To my life. And a lot of people that profess faith in Christ say that today, don't they? They will be happy to say, I am a Christian. But then they'll say, you know what, but I, I'm a Christian, but I don't really accept everything that's in this book. I don't believe everything that it says about Jesus. I don't believe, I'm not willing to accept everything that it tells us to live by. And the moment we do that, then we're not really trusting or accepting that he's the supreme authority, are we? Because just by logic, if all authority on heaven and on earth is given to someone, then the only logical reaction of anyone should be to submit to that person, to submit to that Lord, and the authority of the words of that Lord now, the good news, if we remember last week's passage, is if we're not there yet, and some of us aren't there, some of us it'll take time. And, you know, I have a lot of conversations with people, and people ask me, what's the hardest thing about being a pastor? And some people think it's preaching. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't really get stressed with preaching. I enjoy preaching. I enjoy preparing sermons. Praise God for that, because I see some pastors get really stressed out. I think the hardest part of ministry for me is uh, patience. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a very impulsive, impatient person by nature. Um, I like seeing results quickly. But pastoral ministry and trying to pastor and encourage people and witness to people, that's, a, that's sometimes a long process. Some people, it's going to be instant. I've met people that you just meet them, share the gospel with them, and suddenly they're just like the apostle, just a completely new person. For other people, it takes time. It takes patience. 
takes a lot of love, a lot of prayer. But you see the hand of God at work making changes bit by bit in their life. And I don't know about you, you guys, I don't know where you are, but if you are struggling, there is good news. We saw it last week in the gospel promise of prayer. Maybe you're in a situation where you're saying, you know what, I've been walking with Jesus as Savior for a long time. I haven't even given consideration to Jesus as Lord. I've been, I thought I've been walking with Jesus, but I've had no relationship with his word. I don't know where to begin. I need help. If you remember last week's passage, Jesus gave us a precious promise, a gospel promise on prayer. Because remember, I explained the context of last week's prayer. Last week's promise on prayer wasn't that if you pray hard enough for a mansion, a Lamborghini, or a six-figure salary job, that he's going to give it to you if you pray with enough faith. He was talking about matters of faith. If you are struggling to know the Christ, receive Christ, to, to struggle to you know, get victory over sin in your life, the promise of the gospel is that if you pray a prayer with faith, you say, Christ, I want to know you. I want to know your word. I want to gain victory over sin in my life. The promise from God is that if you press on in prayer, he will answer that. God invites us to pray. Sometimes we think, you know what? When I sin, when I struggle, when I stumble, God doesn't want to hear from me. God delights, especially when we pray in those circumstances. We, Because the problem is if you, if you have that mentality, that mindset, you're kind of thinking, you know what? I, sh I should be able to do this without the gospel. The whole point of the gospel is that you can't do it apart from him. And so God delights when we pray in the midst of some stumbling. When the Bible says in Romans 16 that the, the gospel, as Paul says, I'm not ashamed. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. I mentioned last week that in my my genuine belief is that the greatest miracle you could ever witness isn't God healing someone from leprosy. It's not God healing someone from cancer, although these are amazing things that God can do. I think the greatest miracle that God could ever perform, the greatest manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit is the spiritual transformation of any individual from being taken from dead in their trespasses and in their sins to becoming an adopted, spiritually alive, born again, son or daughter of the Most High God. But according to God's word, that transformation occurs through the Holy Spirit by the word. That's why Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus says the same thing when he prays. He says, I do not ask for these only, so the apostles, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, the preaching of the apostles. And so my hope for you guys have a, have a read over today's passage. Have some serious, humble reflection. Am I someone that's been living with this divorced identity of Jesus? Well, I've been content with accepting him as a saviour, but not really as a Lord. I've been content with receiving heaven, 
But you know what? I don't want him to cramp my lifestyle. And if you do diagnose that you, you're, you're in this place, don't be trapped in this never-ending cycle of despair and shame. Cling to the passage from last week, the promise from last week, that if you pray about matters of faith and you persevere and you press on, he is a faithful God that delights in your prayer in the midst of your backsliding, in the midst of your stumbling, and he will honor our prayer of faith if you cry out to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for today's passage. And Lord, we, we pray for humble reflection in our worship of your Son. We pray that we would accept Christ for the entirety of who he is, not just as Savior, but as Lord of our lives. That when we read that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, that we wouldn't just gloss over it, but that we'd take a prayerful minute to stop and ask you to help us to understand the full depth of what that actually means. That if we accept Christ truly as Lord, then we recognize that our life is no longer our life. And to some that might sound like bad news, but Lord, we pray through the power of your Spirit to understand why this is good news. Because the reality is, is that we are always going to be a slave to something. A slave to our sin, a slave to our addictions, a slave to ungodly desires, a slave to Satan, or a slave to ourselves. We will always be a slave to something. And so, Lord, we ask if we are struggling, if anyone is struggling, that if we are going to make ourselves a slave to anything, that it would be a slave to a perfect master. A good and perfect master that loves us with a perfect love. That has our eternity in mind and not simply the temporal successes and pleasures of this world. Help us to receive Christ not only as Savior, but as Lord. And it's in the name of this perfect Lord we pray. Amen.